This episode is brought to you by Paris Gourmet, delivering specialty foods and ingredients right to your restaurant, bakery, and bar. Learn more at parisgourmet.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the intersection between food, agriculture, and competition. Learn how a chicken raising contest in the 1940s led to the poultry industry we have today. And they were going to run a contest and try and develop what they would call the chicken of tomorrow. We'll also venture into the world of agricultural video games, where a new set of tractors is making a lot of fans happy. The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for. And we pay a visit to a group of Indian restaurants that aren't on the friendliest of terms. Usually they wait for my restaurant, but after a long wait, they go to next door or downstairs. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do. Embrace your competitive spirit and be the first to listen to new Meet and 3 episodes by subscribing now. That's Meet Plus Sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Why Food, the podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and other creative types who have left a career to pursue uh, their dreams in food, beverage, and hospitality. I'm your co-host, Jenny Dorsey. And I'm Ethan Frisch. And today we are very excited to welcome Daniel Gritzer, the culinary director at Serious Eats, into the studio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so Ethan and I are both big fans of Serious Eats. And have been for a long time. <laughs> Ethan this. actually used to be part of a column in Serious Eats. I, uh-huh. I, I co-wrote an ice cream column with the uh, very creative name of Scoop. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, till almost 10 years ago. Um, but could you tell our listeners who might not be familiar with Serious Eats uh, how it's different from other food media publications as well as the whole scope of your job yeah. at Serious Eats? Wow. So I think, you know, Serious Eats has gone through a lot of iterations in its existence. And I've, I've been there for five years now, but the site started around 2007. Um, so there's a lot of history that precedes me. I think... I think there are a couple of things that have always defined the site. One is that it is kind of a food nerd's paradise. <laughs> you know, it's the place where I, I, before I worked at, here's one little story that sort of, I think, illustrates this. Before I worked at Serious Seats, I was trying to figure out how to make cocktail bitters from scratch because my mom had this crazy garden down in Florida and she had like just all these weird roots and barks and fruits and things. And she was excited about all of them. And I was like, I think these could all kind of become the Sarasota bitters, (laughs) but I need to know how to make bitters. And I did a web search and sure enough, like the only website (laughs) that had an answer to this question that was like even remotely helpful was serious eats. Um, and you know the some if you if you're interested in food and you do enough of these web searches over the years i feel like you start to notice this pattern where there's some weird queries you have and if anyone's going to have an answer it's maybe serious eats so that's oh, yeah. that's part of it is just this kind of really like this love of both a very broad interest in food, but also a very deep interest in food from both a, you know, a technical perspective, especially, you know, once Kenji uh, joined the site and started the food lab of going really deep on the food and uh, on the technique and the science sort of empirical side of cooking. Um, But the site also was, you know, obsessed with, you know, burgers and pizza, but like in a really obsessive way. Um, And uh, there, Chi Chi Wang had her great uh, column all about like, you know, cooking with um, organ meats and stuff like that. Um, but also, like, with all of this sort of food nerdery, there's also always been this spirit of, of I, you know, I think a, kind of like a non-elitism around it. So it's like we will take, you know, fast food or, you know, certain kinds of food that can often be easily dismissed. We will take this as seriously or, or somewhat as seriously anyway as, you know, things that might seem more lend themselves more to a very serious, you know, exploration of whatever. So I think that's kind of the, you know, part of those two things together, like a no judgment sort of on the sort of hierarchy of food, 
um, combined with a real interest in in digging a little bit deeper. And then I think also, hopefully, some sense of fun. <laughs> yeah, keep it keep it fun. Have fun with it um, throughout. So does that? I think that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think seriously, this was one of the few places that you'll see. You know, these kind of like side by side experiments where you've made pasta in. 15 different ways and you're analyzing how the composition came out like that's super helpful and very time consuming very right. time consuming and that's you know i think kenji really gets the credit for establishing that aspect of the site this this you know we're we're not just going to receive you know inherit the wisdom of of cooks from from generations past we're we're going to question some of these the these presumptions or the, this these kinds of the dogma of the kitchen and you know let's put this to the test and oftentimes you find that uh, you know a lot of the sort of rules of the kitchen you have to do this something this way or you have to do it that way it's either not true or it's more complicated than people were you know <laughs> talking about it when they were telling you it had to be done this way or you know there's there's a lot to learn there and it's uh, that can be really really valuable uh for cooks to understand like the the why behind the how and also and you know working in restaurants if you you work in a few places every chef comes up and you you start to pick up on these divergences right like one chef says you have to do this one thing yeah this way that's the law i don't want to see it another way then you go to the next kitchen and the same thing they're like no 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 that's not the right way you have to do it mm-hmm. that way and you know if you stop to think about it you're like okay what's going on here like and it's not always that there's one right answer, right? I think that's a really, that's the mistake of going too far down the empirical hole without stepping back to remind oneself that, you know, they're, 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 food is subjective. Um, and so, and, you know, taste is subjective. So it's striking that balance of both, like, let's, let's question these, these fundamental assumptions or, or rules or whatever it is. But let's, let's also remember that, like, Sometimes you're being told multiple things because there is no one right answer, right? That's really, I think, important also. Or, or because the right answer is so labor-intensive and involves right. so many steps that... It's not worth you know, it. Like, yeah. <laughs> the French fries, the potatoes have to be cut and soaked for four hours and then uh, par-fried and then frozen and oh, then defrosted yeah. and... Ref- I don't know, like, right, I'm, totally. I'm making fun of it, but yeah, you know, yeah. these steps that are not really feasible unless unless that's your full-time you job. You run a French fry business. <laughs> exactly, yeah, and I think that's really... And I, I hopefully this this comes across in what we write, but like it's like, okay, maybe we're pursuing sometimes this idea of how do you do this you know kind of perfect version of this thing, which, of course, the concept of perfect is obviously, like, not real especially in food especially in food but you know let's just pretend it is because at least from the point of view of the person doing the exploration they may have some idea of what's perfect to them and that's i think implied Mm -hmm. um even if they find this thing and it's this incredibly just like laborious and complicated process you know okay doesn't mean you have to do it like that every time yeah right there's context of when and where when and where do you you have the energy do you feel like it are you pressed for time do you care does it you know like what's your the effort versus reward um you know ratio um yeah i think that's that's really important but it's still helpful i think to see right it's like at least it's like okay i've learned something Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff I think we we write and publish where it's like, I don't know if, if that many people are going to actually cook this thing exactly as we've written. But hopefully in reading about it, they we've explained the process, the testing process and our, what we've found well enough that it empowers them to make decisions when they're cooking about what they do and don't want to do, whether it's to follow us exactly or to break entirely from what we're doing. So Serious Eats does a lot of different types of content from mm-hmm. these really in-depth stuff to there's, you know, the business side that does some sponsored stuff. There's equipment testing. Yeah. Um, there, there's just a lot of different columns going on. Mm-hmm. How do you manage all of that? Um, how do you stage strategic? How do you manage the operational nitty gritty? Like what parts of that job um, do you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, that's r- hard to answer. I mean, first of all, there is it, there's a team and uh, colleagues. This is not. I'm definitely not doing any of this alone by a by a long shot. Um, it is a lot. Obviously, Series Eats, as as most food publications or uh, well, 
most that, that we know of are their businesses. And so, you know, you have to make money. You have to keep the lights on. It, you know, it costs money to buy ingredients, to do recipe mm-hmm. tests. It's not free. Um, sometimes people say to me, like, so do you, like, work there part-time? And I'm like, wait a minute. Why would they say that? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't, don't do what I do, right? Um, and so probably don't have much insight into how much work it takes, the testing, the shopping, the, the, the washing up, the dishes, mm-hmm. the writing, the editing, the photo shoots. I mean, it, it is very much a full-time job. There's, you know, there's no easy side gig. or <laughs> um, So, and then, yeah, like you said, we do, we do lots, you know, my focus is on the culinary side. So lots, you know, recipes, techniques, things more in that zone. Obviously I can go outside of that, but that's sort of the, the, the heart of where I'm focused. And then we do equipment stuff, which is still in the technique zone because you a lot of techniques involve the equipment that you use and we've uh done increasingly uh robust equipment reviews um and you know i i would like to think really thorough and hopefully thoughtful and hopefully giving at the end of the day very good advice on on what one might buy if you're in the market for a particular piece of equipment um, and the equipment stuff is, is you know we do make money through that through what are called affiliate sales so if you know, if I recommend a certain blender and we link to Amazon, that Amazon link has a code embedded in it where we can make a commission off of the sale of that blender. Um, and we try to be transparent about that, um, you know, at all times on all the articles. There's, there should be uh, a disclaimer ex- explaining that that's how it works, but that, you know, what's really important is that the editorial process, the reviewing process is editorially independent that there's no there's no company that can buy our um recommendation um that's you know that's fun the, the reviews are, are are garbage they're useless if someone can buy my recommendation mm-hmm. um for you know that, that as it should be um and uh but you know it, yeah there's many 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 facets to the business there's a lot of different things to look at there are a lot of you know, there are a lot of balls that, that we all have to keep in the air and I have to keep in the air and I don't always feel like I'm keeping all of those balls in the air very well. Um, so that's a challenge that, you know, just the the sheer number of, of, of tasks and um, yeah. And what was your career path to get to Series Seats? What did you do before this? How far back should I go? Uh, <laughs> to the very beginning. As far back as is uh, relevant. Uh, you, get, you, I get you learned the, to cook as a child. I get the flashback to Goonies when, you, when um, what's the kid's name? His hand's being held over the blender and he's like, everything. And they're like, tell us everything. And he's like, when I was eight years old, I went to the movies. No, um, sorry. <laughs> I feel like that scene speaks to me. Um, <laughs> you have your hands suspended over blenders a lot. Is that Actually, I have one of these weird like recurring like like intrusive mental thoughts that I that I have sporadically is of my hand suddenly getting pureed in a blender. Oh like, my god. Amazing. <laughs> I think it's like you work in kitchens and like there's just you know what injuries are possible and then your mind kind of runs with it and like that's the image for me that like just oh. just like interrupts my thoughts and is like hand in blender. No. <laughs> I have fear of like dropping my knife and it going like vertically into my Through foot. Your foot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, see, you know. What see, I'm I've about. dropped it and it's landed vertically into my mat before. <gasps> Like right next to my foot, so yeah. yeah. And yeah. you're like, that could have been my foot. That could have been my foot. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'm sorry. I started thinking about Goonies <laughs> and and getting hands blended more. <laughs> my um, career, career. Path. Yeah, your career path. Yeah. How did you How did you wind up at Series Seats? Um. So let's see. I'll, I'll work backwards. Uh. So before Series Seats, I was a, a food editor at Food and Wine. Um. And the primary responsibility there was editing recipes but i had a monthly column that was sort of like the food nerds column called the gastronaut files and i had uh you know i got to write profiles and do some other stuff edit writers as well it was i appreciate it other publications um they all work differently in some places the food editors literally only edit recipes and I would have a hard time only doing that. I would get, I, I like editing recipes because it's a very kind of interesting um, logic problem, logic puzzle to piece together. But if I only did that, I think I would, I would hit, I would hit my limit. Um, 
So Food and Wine was great because I was able to do a pretty wide range of things there. And then before that, I was at Time Out New York. That was my first food media job. And Time Out is a weekly that is not about cooking at home. It's all about what to do when you're out in the city. And I was at the in the bars and restaurant section. So I was covering restaurant and bar openings, trends, you know, chef and bartender pieces and, you know, you name it, all that kind of stuff. And that was really great training because I had no I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't you know, I didn't know anything about about it. So that was a really good, quick um, way to learn like this. You know, we timeout didn't have uh, uh, standalone fact checkers. We were expected to fact check all of our own stuff. And we did fact check all of our own stuff so getting on the phone and just going right through an entire piece is this true is would you say this is accurate does is this you know boom 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 check 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 getting those kind of really like important bones to reporting because working in food media also is often reporting um so it was really 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 helpful um for me in that regard and then before time out i was in restaurants for about five years in new york city cooking um some catering. I worked at Danny Meyer's catering company for a while. Um, I was at a Tuscan restaurant called Beppe with the chef Cesare Casella. Uh, I worked for the chef Didier Viro at a kind of modern French restaurant called X. Um, and what kind of broke me into that was a sort of a long stage I had done over kind of spread out over many years, but then more focused right before I got into restaurant work at uh, Chanterelle um, in Tribeca, which is just a, a legendary yeah, classic mm-hmm. restaurant. Um, and the Waltucks, David and Karen, who um, owned it and, and ran it, are just you know two of the finest people. Uh, and so that was something. I met David when I was 13 years old. And he invited me to come hang out in the kitchen at Chanterelle if I ever wanted to. And so I used to, I would do that occasionally, but I was obviously a kid and had high school and whatever, junior high school and (laughs) (laughs) things like college. So it wasn't like a a consistent thing. And then it was when I, when I was really thinking about maybe trying to do restaurant work and cook professionally, I had like an eight month, much, you know, regular stage. And that was on top of a full-time job. So I'm, I'm walking you backwards here through my life. Uh, full-time job at a not-for-profit in Brooklyn that was devoted to the creation of Brooklyn Bridge Park, which I'm very proud to say now, you know, exists. crossing exists. Yeah, exit, cross the bridges. And I look down and I'm like, I, I had a, a piece to play yeah. in this wonderful yeah. thing existing. Um, well, so what, what inspired you to move from a kitchen job to food journalism? The, on some level, when I started working in kit, in restaurant kitchens, I kind of knew that that wasn't my like like that wasn't my life path, or mm-hmm. it wasn't likely to be. Um, I didn't ever aspire to own my own restaurant. I especially once I worked in restaurants and I saw what some of the behind the scenes challenges are, was even less interested in it. Yeah, <laughs> um, people used to say, "Oh, when are you going to open your own place?" And I'd be like, <laughs> "Never, try, never. <laughs> Let's try never." <laughs> um, and so that, but you know, then you start to think about that, and you're like, uh, "Okay, that's." If I'm if I'm if I don't have that ambition, is this really the right thing for me to do when I'm 30, 40, 50? Um, and also the schedule was was hard. Like I really enjoyed the kitchen work um, in a lot of ways, but I did start to really palpably feel the impact on my life of always working when everyone in my life was not working. Mm-hmm. All my friends, my family you know, birthdays, holidays, I think I'm not a sentimental person, but like things like that, after all, it starts to like, for me, it started to, I felt it. It was like, I'm never around anything that happens. I'm not there. Mm-hmm. I'm working when the, you know, cause you're on that inverted schedule. Um, and so I think that also was another big piece of it was like, I need, I need to ha- have sort of a plan B and kind of secretly my plan B all along was food media, but I didn't really know how that was going to happen. Like when I, f- when I first was really like, okay, how do I do this? How do I make this transition? I was like, the only writing sample I have to show for myself is like the last thing I wrote in college, which was like a senior thesis on a, a musical instrument from Zimbabwe. Hmm. And it's like, I don't think food publications want to read my like, 70 page senior college thesis on the Mbira, right? Like, <laughs> so what did you, what did you send them? 
I um so I had bef- before I had worked at this not for profit that I mentioned, um, and then also after some time in restaurants, I've worked on farms in Italy, France, and Spain, totaling like about a year. Um, and so the, the when I wanted to go from restaurants to food media, and I knew I didn't have any clips, I thought, what if I go back to the you know to farms and do that thing I had done like five years ago. But this time I'll like start a personal blog and blog about it. And at least I'll have something to show, you know, it's not edited by anyone. It's just, but at least it's like something that's more relevant. And that I worked. Like, I think it was enough to, to, to have something that was like a relevant piece of writing. (laughs) And you also mentioned when we were talking earlier at lunch that some of the things you learned in the restaurants after being promoted to sous chef and having to kind of manage up and down has also come into play in your current job. So there has been a continual little pieces that have continued throughout that journey besides the fact that it's all been around food. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It was a challenge in restaurants and it's a challenge now. And I think in some ways it's even more of a challenge now, like I was saying to you, which is, you know, when I, started in restaurants you know and I think this is true even if you go to culinary school like you come out you're green you just don't know how to really be successful in a restaurant kitchen and 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 it's a um you know it's really trial by fire like literally yeah literally <laughs> you learn the hard way you learn by making mistakes and feeling the consequences of of those mistakes hopefully you know in a lot of kitchens, it's through direct abuse from the chefs. Uh, I was lucky. I did not work in, in like particularly abusive places ever. Like I worked for good people who were decent. <laughs> um, but even still, if you if you have expectations for yourself and you know you know you you feel the impact of your mistakes for sure, and and so you it's a steep learning curve, and you learn. But what you first learn is like how to just be. Uh, the master of your own domain. So you're like garde manger. How do you, where, when you get to the point where you don't feel overwhelmed every day, making sure that everything is the way it's supposed to be on that station. And then you move to other stations and you have to relearn it each time because every one is different and then every restaurant's different. And then, you know, eventually I got promoted to be the sous chef at, at, at one of the, at the, um, the Italian restaurant. And suddenly I was still working the line but the expectation was now uh, that I had to also know what everyone else was doing and be responsible for that. And there was a lot of like growing pains there. <laughs> um, you know, the chef would open someone else's low boy and pull out something and be like, this is, you know, four days old. But he wouldn't say it to the lion cook. He'd come over to me and be like, why does this cook have this thing that's four days old that they're about to serve? And I'd be like, oh, man, I don't know. I'm just trying to get myself set up here. (laughs) I got my own stuff to worry about. But, oh, no, I see your point. Okay, I need to worry about what all these other people are doing as well. Um, And learning to do that and kind of have operate on that level of like, I know what's happening in this entire kitchen. And I know what's happening. And I'm also doing all of my nitty gritty detail stuff because I, I have a, you know, a station that I'm responsible for. Some restaurants, the sous chefs float more, right? It's different every place, yeah. like whether they're on the line or not on the line. Some restaurants, the chefs are on the line because they're still, it's a small enough place. They're cooking. Um, but, you you know, you learn the hard way how to kind of occupy those two mental spaces at the same time. And what I do now is still like I'm in the weeds with my own stuff. I'm testing recipes. I have to do the research for the recipes. And I... I want to do thorough research or as thorough as I can in the time I have anyway. Um, you know, I want to go, go into old cookbooks. I want to get online and find the, the, you know, if it's whether I have to run it through like a, a translation software or, you know, watching like YouTube videos, you know, I'm, I, I, I speak a little Spanish. I speak Italian. I feel like I can understand. I'll watch like YouTube videos, like, I was doing these Peruvian recipes recently and I was watching a lot of Peruvian videos on YouTube to be like, to just let me like try to understand better and better and better. Um, so I'm in, I'm, I'm in that world of like my, and then like, what's, what's my, what's my final version of this recipe and what's my angle when I write about it? Like, what am I going to focus on? What's the lesson here that I want to try to communicate and all of that stuff. But then I'm also like supposed, you know, responsible for the bigger picture stuff. 
Um, and that's very hard. I find it very hard to keep those two things um, balanced and and keep the eye in two places. Because a little bit it also now feels like more of a moving target. Like at least in a restaurant, like you know your station, you you can kind of get into the swing of it and your kind of day is fairly... You know, you get curveballs thrown at you a lot in weird ways in restaurants, but you also like you kind of know what to expect at a certain point. Mm-hmm. And and the outcome is always like the 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 right outcome is usually the same. Like yeah. you want the best service then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you like your to do list is very clear. Like if you sit down and you make your to do list, it's very clear. But now, like my to do list is just this sprawling monster of like stuff that's like, you know, I could spend ages on all you know. So I talk to people I'm like, how do you know how, you know, it's like, how do you manage your time better? How do you, how can I be more organized? And people have suggestions, but then it's like, yeah, it's more complicated than that. Like mm-hmm. it's the logistics of my job are more complicated than that. And also like we literally at Series were so small and scrappy that like I do, I do my own shopping. I do my own cleanup, dishwashing, like, and the shopping in New York City. Well, what recipe am I working on? Where am I going to buy the stuff right. for that? Like. I have to figure that out. It's different every time. It's different a lot of the times. What if I go to a place that I think is going to have everything and then they don't have something I need? Now I have to go somewhere else. And it's New York City. I'm like on foot, on the train. Yeah. Maybe jumping in a cab sometimes, but I can't run up a ton of taxi bills and half the time taxis are slower. Anyway, this is like, this is the stuff that's going through my head. Mm-hmm. Um, All right, we're oh. going to... We're going to take a quick break. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, going. no. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back in two minutes. This episode is brought to you by Paris Gourmet, a leading specialty food importer and distributor servicing the New York tri-state area and beyond from coast to coast. I'm Jordan Werner-Berry, the host of Modernist Breadcrumbs here on HRN. When it comes to freshly baked artisan bread, it's key to pair it with butter that's made with the same amount of care and attention. And you don't have to go all the way to France to find truly amazing butter. Vermont 83% is an American butter made using traditional French methods. It's produced by a dairy cooperative in New England. And as a Vermont native, I love that this delicious butter is made locally by family farms. Vermont 83% is great for cooking, baking, and serving on your table with fresh breads and artisan cheeses. It's proudly distributed by Paris Gourmet to restaurants and grocery stores around the tri-state area. Learn more about Paris Gourmet and all of their gourmet savory foods and pastry ingredients at parisgourmet.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. It's Todd Shulkin, the host of Inside Julia's Kitchen here on HRN. Inside Julia's Kitchen carries on Julia Child's legacy of introducing the brightest lights in the food world to a wider audience, just as Julia did from her home kitchen. Look for Inside Julia's Kitchen wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. Um, you're listening to Why Food, and we're joined this week by Daniel with by Daniel Gritzer, who's the culinary director at the amazing, wonky, nerdy food website, <laughs> Serious Eats. <laughs> Thank um, you. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Before the break, we were talking a little bit about what it's like to be the culinary director of Serious Eats, which I I think is a little more complicated and laborious than most of your readers probably realize. Um, But I think one of the other things that Serious Eats does really well is is recipe translation, Mm -hmm. right? In the sense that you're taking a recipe that maybe is not something that you grew up with, is something that you've had to learn probably for the article or for the recipe that you're writing for the site. Right. And you're presenting it to an audience that likewise did not grow up with it, probably doesn't know a whole lot about its origin, its history, the the cultural and economic forces that have created the recipe that you're putting in front of them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes some of them do. And, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and you, then and you want to get it right or as close to right as you can so that people who come from those, you know, who grew up with those cuisines don't say you've just totally bungled like you've gotten mm-hmm. this so wrong so yeah, right bungled. so how do you do that <laughs> how do you do that with with respect with appreciation uh with yeah. with depth and detail it's such a good question and it's one that i think about a lot and it, it weighs on me a lot um you know i'm 
first of all, I'm a, a white guy in food media, and that's not lost on me that I'm, you know, I'm coming from, God, you know, th- that, that's a whole, <laughs> the whole thing, but I'm coming whole, from... A whole other conversation. It's a whole other conversation, <laughs> but it's like if, if I, you know, if I do cuisines that are from, you know, non, I guess, what, European cultures or backgrounds, you know... Ha- how do I en- engage with that? How do I do it respectfully? Can I? Should I? Like, yeah. like should I the, be running for someone big, else? They're yeah. the big questions. Like, should I? Who should? You know, like we could. You know, these are huge uh, and important questions, um, and I don't think they're you know so easy to answer when you get down into the details. You know, um, but I think about it a lot. I think you know, for me. Personally, I try not to write about um, or do recipes that I don't have some, that I haven't had some experience with. And I don't even know where that bar is. Like, is it that I've traveled to the country of origin and eaten the dish there in order to see it, hopefully, in its context? You know, is that sufficient? Um, can I do it where growing up in New York City, where it's obviously a global city and there are restaurants of, of all kinds, but not, nece- you know, not necessarily doing food in exactly the way that it would be done where the food comes from? Because th- that's normal, right? Like the ingredients are different. They're, the f- equipment can be different. There are things that change how how that food even comes out, even with like if someone's totally dedicated to trying to completely replicate it you know italian food doesn't you can cook italian food in the united states you can cook really good italian food in the united states but a lot of times it's like it's it's still not the same like maybe you can capture the spirit of it or try to capture the spirit of it but it's not the same and in some ways trying to make it the same can be a problem also because there, there may be something, you know, ingredient wise or whatever that works there that if you force it to work here, it's not, it's not, mm-hmm. sometimes you need like the substitution because the substitution, while it clearly won't be the same dish, at least captures the spirit of the dish better than like trying to force some not good version of the original ingredient or, you know. And, and also recognizing that there is no like one original version that yeah. town to town, family to family, family to family, everybody's gener- going to have a different person to person and yeah. generation mm-hmm. to generation. Yeah, the whole authenticity conversation is and it's funny because it's like <laughs> it's a, authentic, authenticity is a very problematic concept and obviously can get you into big trouble. But I'm also not a person who's like just like we need to just kick authenticity off the curb and get rid of it forever because I think and a little bit this is like a semantic thing about what it how do you def, what does authenticity mean but I think there is to me there's a version of understanding authenticity that can that that makes sense to me anyway which is like it's to me it's definitional like if I cook a um you know a meat sauce made with um, chicken and I add vodka to it and I add like, I don't know, um, whatever, like it's uh, whatever, chicken and vodka and there's green tomatoes cooked into it. And I go, this is ragu bolognese. People will very rightfully be like, this is not ragu bolognese. Like, to me, there's an authenticity conversation that makes sense on this very basic definitional level, which is like, how do we, we need to completely just come to terms with the fact that there's no one version of a thing. Um, it shifts, it's messy, it changes. There's, you know, people can insist there's a right way and a wrong way. They're probably wrong. But there is, there are, there are boundaries to what a dish can be or a thing yeah. can be. And we can argue, like, they're not necessarily defined boundaries or ones that everyone will agree on. But there's, we can all agree that, like, there's some kind of a boundary. And I think that that's where the authenticity conversation for me can be interesting mm-hmm. or valid. Um, and, you know, and that gets into, well, who gets, who gets to define where these lines are? 
Well, and, and does the person, A, who cooks the dish, and B, writes the recipe, how does that shift the conversation around definitional authenticity? Yeah. Are you not an Italian person writing a ragu bolognese recipe? Does that it, make it authentic yeah, in and of itself? Even if, or anyway, right. I mean, this is... Right, right. Does, does it count that I worked on farms there for, for a while? Or is that, you know, like... Well, I mean, we very quickly get... Who knows? Right. Like, maybe not. Maybe that's not nearly enough experience, you know... This is where the arguments can happen, or the converse. I think you know better conversations than arguments, but like can sometimes arguments are fun. Too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> arguments. Arguments are good too. These are really important and and uh, conversations and arguments to have. Um, but I think they're valid ones, and 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 I'm not opposed to like that kind of question and idea of authenticity. Um, sometimes when it's just like, I just you know. We've heard this. We know this. The world is not does not exist in black and white. It, it it's a much messier picture than that. And I think that just as much as the idea of authenticity can be really problematic and get used and abused in all sorts of ways, the idea of totally dismissing it raises its own set of problems because then it's like nothing matters. Yeah. So in cool. in writing a recipe. Sorry, <laughs> where we started this question. To like get me get me to like a I point mean, here. I mean, only if you want to. Uh, how do you, if, if authenticity is only partially the goal, um, how do you do that? How do you, how do you convey a recipe in a way that, that presents it accurately, if not totally authentically? I personally like to, if I can, um, dive into like, um, first of all, cookbooks and, and, you know, important, whatever we, whatever's, you know. On my bookshelf, I have cookbooks that one might say, these are important cookbooks, whether it's Marcella Hazan or Adaboni, or, you know, um, you, you could name your roster of sort of like semi-contemporary Italian food writers who are either from here or from there, but are considered like good sources on this stuff and see what they say and compare what they say to each other. And then I like to also try to get into the older stuff. Like I... I've done. I've had some a lot of fun doing like some Provençal recipes. Um, I have a couple um, old Provençal cookbooks, and they're like written in Provençal, and so then I have to like type that into like weird language translators to try to like, <laughs> figure out what it actually says. Um, and you learn, like I learn all this stuff. Like tapenade is originally, if you go back far enough, not a an olive heavy spread. Oh. it's like an anchovy and uh, I think tuna. It's been a while since I've since I've uh, read my own stuff, so my memory might be fuzzy. But it's it's like more much more capers and fish hmm. with the olives kind of in the background. That's the original tapenade. But you have to like if you just do a Google search and look at tapenade tapenade recipes. Ever tapenade is an olive spread from the south of France. Blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Like over and over and over and over again. And it's like has anyone bothered to like look at this. So that's part of what I will try to like. So that's sort of the historic research. Um, if I can find the sources and the time, for, you know, I'm obviously not, you know, don't have time to write dissertations on these things and, you know, can't always find the, the material I need. But that's one side of it. It's just trying to get this picture. That's a picture through both space and time of what a certain dish, if it's a well-known dish looks like. And that can be very informative for me. Um, and then I think personal experience, like, have I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever done a Chinese food recipe on Serious Eats because I, I just don't think I, I don't think I understand it well enough. I, like, I, as a diner, I have, eat, have eaten a lot of Chinese food here in the United States in my life, but I don't think I can speak about it from a position of, like, how to cook it or, like, what ingredients to choose? I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm way out of my depth there. Um, I just haven't had the opportunity. Um, and so I tend to like, and that's not like a hard and fast rule. I'm, if you go through like my archives of stuff, you will find things that I haven't had a more intimate experience with from the cooking side um, and from the kind of eating side through travels. Um, but I try, I try not to. This raises thorny issues too, though, right? Because it's like, well, who has the privilege to travel and taste around the world? And like, wh- like who, who, 
you know, are you closing doors to people who don't have access to that? And you're saying you can't write about this. Yeah. Should they write about it? Like, what is your what is your stance if a writer comes and pitches something that they are totally unfamiliar with? I guess maybe. It, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an easy answer. I think maybe it depends how. I think I think they can write about it, but maybe it changes how they write about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this does seem like it gets gets us to an issue that is something that uh, I think is important to you that you talk about a fair amount, which is. Um, representing diverse voices in food media and and as much as possible giving people the chance to represent their own food heritage rather than trying to uh, you know develop a, a google-based wikipedia expertise in something right. just for the purpose right. of, a, of right. an article I've, st- I've studied this right exactly <laughs> i spent 20 minutes on google and now i know everything about tapenade yeah um, yeah, yeah so i mean how do you as an editor how do you do that how do you find the right people to write the right articles and and support them to do a good job in th- that. That's that's hard to uh, in a couple ways. One is you want I, I want I shouldn't say you I want people who do bring some kind of expertise to what they're writing about, and often that does overlap with some kind of lived experience or you know connection, cultural connection, geographic connection, something to like the subject. But. Um, I also don't want to assume that that's what they want to write about. And, I, you know, it can be, I think, equally kind of problematic to approach someone and just be like, well, you are of X background. Therefore, like, do you want to do this series on X cuisine for mm-hmm. me? Like, and uh, I was mentioning to you guys at lunch when I was at Food and Wine, I, I interviewed Mother Joffrey um, for an article and it was about her life. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I, I, I had have to preface it saying that I have not looked at the interview transcript in a long time. So I'm very, very heavily paraphrasing from memory here. (laughs) These are not direct quotes by a long shot, but she said like this to me, that's really stuck with me, this thing, which was like, I would have basically been very interested in being an Italian food authority. And I have so much experience traveling to Italy, spending time in Italy, cooking Italian food, that 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 like I I don't know if she said she knows more about it than um, you know the Indian f- cuisines that she became well known for writing about, but you know the implication was like I got I, I kind of got pigeonholed and she, and I remember her saying I'm, I mean I'm not angry about it I had a I've had a really great career mm-hmm. but like especially you know I think we're moving in the right direction and being sort of mindful of this stuff but obviously there's a long way to go um you know it, in in that time like modern Joffrey's like best Tuscan recipes was that was not going to happen right yeah. it just wasn't going to happen um even though like a you know a, a, a white person could have had that cookbook yep best you know James Beard does Italy or something <laughs> like it so so yeah, it's sort of this question of how do you, um, you know, try to get the representation and diversity, um, but also not, you know, pigeonhole people based on you know just like their their background. Um, so I, one you know one thing that's helping now is there have been some great um, there's um, equity at the table, which yeah. is Julia Tertian's. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, does she do it with someone else? I don't want to um, leave any other names off, but I know she put that. I think yeah, it's hers put that together where you can look for you know people who and they put their bios and you can see like who what are their interest areas expertise areas um so there 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 are movements in in the you know in the direction and projects that people are doing that i think help um close the gap between uh you know editors and writers i think you know i think there are there's obviously systemic racism and really huge societal problems that, that are, that are, that are ever present. Um, and individual, you know, we all carry our own problems with us or, or biases. Um, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of people want to do the right thing. And so things like that, like equity at the table help provide the tools to find, cause it's like, you know, it, Oh, I, you know, I would hire, you know, a person of, of color, um, but I can't find, find them. them yeah. Right. And I've had that as an editor, I've had that experience where it's like, I, my intention is that I would, you know, like to ha- find more diverse voices, but I'm having trouble turning, finding these people. Right. 
and there's um, a deadline and there's urgency. There, yeah, there's a deadline and there's urgency and it's like, and, and if they're not coming to me um, and I can't find them and maybe I'm not trying hard enough, maybe I'm not trying in the right ways, but these kinds of projects I think are really valuable in helping, you know, bridge that gap between the intention and actually being able to sort of execute and, and, and start to change some of this stuff. I also want to touch upon your point earlier about kind of going online, looking at one thing and seeing the same regurgitated information. Oh, yeah. And like, do you think that there, or maybe not that's a leading question, but like where does the responsibility lie in terms of who should be doing the more in-depth research? Should everyone be doing it? Is everyone responsible for that? Like, or one publication has to kind of be the safeguard of that information. Like how do we move towards a place where more accurate information is decimated more widely? It's such a good question. I mean, when I was at Food and Wine, and this is not to critique anyone there, I worked with incredibly hardworking, talented, smart colleagues. But the general like kind of sense was that we were editors and we would go to the experts. And many in many cases, the experts were the chefs. And so if the chef told you, like, this is how you do this thing and this is why, that was, from a fact-checking standpoint, like, sufficient. Like, mm-hmm. the And this is true in a lot of media. Like, you go to an expert. If the expert tells you this thing, you can quote the expert. You maybe yeah. will find another expert who gives you another point of view. But, like, at the end of the day, someone who's an authority is is an acceptable source. But cooking is kind of a weird zone because there's a, it goes back, you know, to, I mean, it's definitional for what it means to be human is to cook um, and so a lot of ideas are, are embedded in how we do it and from just strictly a kind of cold hard scientific or you know point of view or, or historically accurate whatever however you want to you know question the the lessons we learn um, it hasn't been vetted in maybe you know the as rigorous a way as a lot of you know if you were talking to I don't know a, a biologist who studies a thing you know the so, and the bar of expertise is kind of variable these days as well. Yeah, very. It's just, you know, it's it's this chain of of information being passed. So it's like you know, this person teaches the next person how to you know, often through families or through, and there's lots of valuable, great, whether it's you know technically right or technically wrong in all cases. There's a lot of value in that. But then, things that are technically wrong get funneled into it and I don't you know you could sort of ask, ask with some of it like well, does that matter like that's part of like the poetry of life and human storytelling and like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but then there's also like if somebody just keeps saying like you know bring your meat to room temperature before you cook it and you're like I can prove this doesn't really matter that much um, that kind of thing so I think to your question it's <clears throat> sorry I, I, I kind of wish that more publications did hold themselves to a higher standard and did not just take the it, it, it the truth is it doesn't take that much prodding or exploration to often find the chinks in the armor right like the mm-hmm. um the these long-standing ideas i mean there are so many recipes that i've done and stories that i've done where it's like you know it's like oh well just a little bit of research has turned up that this is actually this thing everyone's been saying is not true and then you Google it and like every publication is saying this thing. And you're just like, right. So whoever was assigned the story by publication B did their own web search and saw publications A, C, and D had already written it. Well, that seems valid enough. So I'm going to put it in my own words. It's not plagiarism, but it's like it's I, the idea is just oh, it's, it's like a meme almost like <laughs> echoing through mm-hmm. the um, this information. And, and you know, this it gets under my skin also because there are certain topics where I know that like the article I've written has better information than most of what else is out there, but Google doesn't necessarily Google doesn't care. care. <laughs> and it's like, man, that's messed up. Like they're like five articles above mine on the Google search results and they're all wrong. And mine is, I don't, you know, it probably has wrong stuff too, but it's like less wrong than them. Like, <laughs> what? That's messed up. Like, yeah. Yeah, that kills me. <laughs> There's also an ongoing situation there about um, the lack of money that's in journalism. So people like 
do they have the time to do this research as well? There's like totally, yeah, and it's like with the digital media revolution, and it's like publications are paying like you know two cents for like a you know four hundred word article, and can you expect anyone to be like put that kind of time and effort into who? No, they're gonna, gonna like they're gonna do the you know the the quick version, and you're gonna get you're gonna get what you pay for, I guess. Yeah. We, uh, I feel like we could keep talking for at least another hour, but somebody else has to get in the studio. And so, <laughs> Daniel, it's been a, a real pleasure having you join us. Can you tell our listeners where they can uh, read your work, find you? If a writer is interested in pitching you a story, how would they? How should they do that? Um, yeah. So let's see. Uh, I'm on SeriousEats.com. Um, my email is Daniel at SeriousEats.com. Um, and uh, most of what I've done in the past five years is there. And um, I'm, I'm very bad at email, but very happy to hear from people and get pitches. Um, so, yeah, don't, don't be shy. And if I don't respond, you know, you can, you can nudge me. It's, it's almost never that I'm deliberately ignoring someone. It's almost always that I've lost track almost of the always. email. And <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'm just like, no. <laughs> if you don't hear from me, it's because I thought your email was dumb and I don't know. Um, yeah, and as always, you can find us uh, on, on the Heritage Radio website, heritageradionetwork.org. You can email us whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can find me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. You can find me at, at Chef Jenny Dorsey, and you can find our Instagram um, at Y Food Podcast. And thanks to Amanda, our awesome sound engineer, for keeping us live this hour. And our, our theme, theme song is Blind by the Red Crickets. We're both so excited to talk about now. our theme song. Yes, great. Um, enjoy the theme song. And, and we'll talk to you next <laughs> see week. See you next week. To a place that only I can know That's why we ended up like that Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.